Hi, uh, welcome to the new voting project. My name is Kanal, your host, and today we're here with Leah Watson, a senior staff attorney for the racial justice program at ACLU. Uh, you are former counsel for the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights and a graduate of Harvard Law School. I think we should have put that first. I mean, that's just an accomplishment right there. I'm sure it was difficult. <laughs> so thank you so much for, for taking the time to be here with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited for this conversation. Of course, of course. And in any case, if you're ever willing to trade positions with me, I'd happily make you the student and I can be the lawyer. You know, I don't have a law degree, but I'd be happy to do that. Um, There's no way I'm taking any more standardized tests. Uh, yeah, me neither. So we, we can talk to my parents after that. Uh, what is the SAT? That's a totally separate podcast. Um, <laughs> let's dive into these questions. Uh, just for our viewers, talk a little bit about your background, you know, the work that you've done for the ACLU um, and the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights. Also, how college prepared you. I mean, you had to, to take an LSAT and, and go to law school. And so talk about those experiences and culminating to your current position. Sure. So I grew up in Little Rock, Arkansas, and I attended Vanderbilt undergrad, where I majored in communication studies and sociology. After law school, I went to, I, I did Teach for America and taught high school for two years in Atlanta. And then I went to law school at Harvard and um, began working as an attorney. I worked in the private sector for much of my career at law firm. And then I ended up transitioning over to the civil rights space. So I began while I was at the law firm, I had an opportunity to spend six months at the Washington Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights and Urban Affairs. And there I was able to work on a host of civil rights issues, including disability rights, housing, policing. Um, and I really enjoyed the work. I enjoyed bringing litigation, suing people when things happened that I didn't agree with and thought were illegal. Mm -hmm. And I went from there, um, I returned to my law firm, but pretty soon after, went to the National Lawyers Committee, the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. And at the Lawyers Committee, I worked with the Criminal Justice Project, where I focused on the criminalization of poverty, which is really thinking of ways of challenging the challenge and the fact that people who can't afford to pay their fines and fees are often punished disproportionately in our criminal legal system. That could look a variety of ways, including the fact that people who can't afford to make bail end up sitting in jail, right. um, which is an overwhelming percentage of people who are in a jail setting or just there because they don't have the money to pay to get out. Additionally, um, I focused a lot on people who could not afford to pay their fines and fees and were subsequently um, incarcerated. They had their driver's licenses revoked. Some people lost custody of their children as a result. I mean, it was a disaster all because they didn't have money to pay an initial, let's say, a traffic ticket, sometimes a municipal fine or fee. Um, from the Lawyers Committee, I moved over to the ACLU. I'm in the national office where I work on racial justice issues more broadly. I still work on criminalization of poverty issues, but I've also had the opportunity to work on biased policing and the interaction between um, police and white supremacist groups and how those interactions are problematic and also um, potentially illegal. And then I've been able to work on education matters. I was part of a team that filed a challenge last week to a law that was designed, uh, an Oklahoma law that was designed to 
prevent the instruction of critical race theory in schools. Right. But in actuality, even beyond critical race theory, it prevents many productive conversations about um, racial and sex discrimination. And um, it's really just very overly broad about the ways that it restricts those conversations in not only primary and secondary schools, but also um, in higher education. I was able to work on challenges based on COVID, um, thinking through ways of distributing the vaccine equitably across to make sure communities of color had access. Also, um, I was a member of a lot of a team that was on a lawsuit challenging conditions in Maricopa County Jail um, and thinking through the ways, the obligation of the jail to prevent the spread um, of COVID within the jail. Um, so there's a lot of different pieces that I, I've been working on. I will note that while I just talked about my professional experience, I want to flag that for you. But one big note is that I am here in my personal capacity and not as an official voice of the ACLU. Right. So I might say that again in the future. Um, but you asked me how college prepared me for this, my job. And that's an interesting question. Because I majored in communication studies and sociology, um, I was interested in intersections intersectionality, intersections between people, um, ways of identifying trends, conducting research, conducting investigations. When I was in, in undergrad, I had no desire to go to law school. Wow. I wanted to be a journalist. And so it's interesting to see the ways that your career, um, the, cur the turns that it may take to, for you to end up in a certain space. Um, and I rely on the skills I learned in undergrad a lot, even though they're not necessarily legal skills per se. Cool. Yeah, no, shout out to Vandy. I've heard it's a, it's a great place. Um, Harvard doesn't I love need, Vandy. Yeah, you know, Harvard doesn't need a shout out for me. Harvard should shut me out. Um, in fact, <laughs> no, just playing. We'll pass that along. Yeah, exactly, right? Um, but no, it sounds like you've done incredible work. I mean, that's a diverse array of projects. I mean, from going to the lawyers community, I have a lot of friends at the lawyers community, so they always tell me what's going on in the civil rights world. But no, that's that's amazing. And we thank you for, for all the hard work and dedication you've put into your legal career. I mean, I'm I'm an unofficial lawyer, so like um, you know, <laughs> I do I do the mock lawyer stuff. Um, but I guess for the purposes of our conversation, um, explain your role right now. You're a senior staff attorney for the Racial Justice Program. Uh, explain your current role, your responsibilities, any any cool projects. You know, give give me the 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 inside scoop on what the ACLU is doing right now. So the ACLU is a huge organization. Um, I think we're well over a thousand employees across the country. So I can't speak on everything, but I can certainly tell you about my work at RJP. Um, as a senior staff attorney, I am responsible for investigating areas where we think we might want to bring a case or file litigation in the future. I also play a role in our filed litigation, um, which is, you, as you might expect, um, it could be anything from writing motions or researching or negotiating settlements. I mean, all the things that come along once the case has been filed. And even just taking a step back in the investigative stage, um, I am normally trying to figure out, wrap my head around what is happening on the ground with an issue. And so for me, that falls into a few different buckets. Um, normally outreach, where if we weren't in COVID times, I would be traveling back and forth to meet with people to talk about their experience. You know, I do that outreach on the phone or on Zoom. Um, 
It can also involve public records requests where I want to understand the scope of an issue or whether or not there is an issue. And so I might submit a public records request for everything related to a certain topic so I can understand, um, better understand how it manifests. And then another another bucket would be um, media audits where we just review whatever we can find on a topic, both scholarly material, but sometimes just news articles to find everything that's out there and understand, is there a, a an issue here that we can litigate? And if not, if there is, you know, what's the strength of those claims? If there's not, um, do we want to pursue an advocacy strategy? And that's something I'm building out right now where we're not going to litigate, but what are our other options to express our angle um, about whether or not this is an issue or to create space for other people to do that? Mm-hmm. Right. And which advocacy is this for, for a specific issue uh, right now? Um, we, we have it ongoing. There is ongoing in a few different spaces. Um, I'm specifically working on something that is going to be forthcoming around in the policing space. And so I'll be sure to link that to you when we're able to release it. But just thinking through ways, what are the ways of building advocacy around an issue? It could be writing a report. It could be um, creating a website. Do we want to conduct interviews? Are there other tribunals we should reach out to? Are there other ways of framing the issue in a way that's digestible? So that's one of the things that was really exciting to me at the ACLU because we have litigators. I'm a litigator. I um, sue people and organizations. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's and I, cool. I like that. I mean, um, but that's not litigation. Is pretty much like a very blunt tool. Like you can sue people, and then there's all of these rules you have to follow, and the relief that you get at the end may or may not be as tailored to what is actually needed. And so we need litigation, but we also need advocacy. Um, where you can be a little bit more tailored and think through what do we actually want here? And is there a way that we can talk to the right people in order to make that happen? Do we need to draft a bill in order to make that happen? Can we just talk to other people? I mean, there's a lot that goes into it. So I, I too am learning about all of the ways to be a better advocate. Yeah, no. And that, that sounds amazing. I mean, um, advocacy as a whole is, is a large part of what I've done. Uh, at the local level, at the regional and state levels um, to pass, you know, Green New Deal or, you know, we're looking at climate justice or even, you know, passing our our county budgets for policing or new developments. I mean, that's all an advocacy strategy, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. So so at the ACLU, I'm sure it's extremely important. Um, But I want to go back. You had mentioned you had worked in the private sector, uh, you know, after law school, and then you got the experience to work with the Lawyers Committee in Washington. I want to ask, why make that transition from the private sector to essentially you're performing what I believe as a public service, right, as, as to helping reform, you know, inequities in, in, in our country? Um, why make that transition? Um, that's a great question. And honestly, that was always my plan. When I was a teacher um, and working in the classroom, it was amazing working with students every single day, especially high school students, because as teenagers, you get all the best, all the best and all the dramatic sometimes as well. Right. But it's so refreshing to work with kids every single day. Um, and one difficulty that I had is that 
Teach for America has this model where if you're making gains year over year, you can close the achievement gap. You can make sure that kids who are currently not performing very well, they can catch up to their peers. They just need the resources to do it. And sometimes I felt frustrated that when we were making the gains, if we were making gains in this one area in my classroom, it's hard to continue making those gains year over year over year. Um, in the classroom. So I wanted to make systemic change. So the reason I went to law school is I wanted to think about all the ways that I can influence my students outside of the classroom. Because I felt like as a teacher, the things that were holding my kids back from learning, it wasn't, you know, stuff that was happening in the school building. It was so everything else that was happening outside. You can't focus on the six things of the Renaissance if you don't know we're going to sleep tonight, or you just saw your mom is really sick and she doesn't think she's going to be able to pay her medical bills or someone in your family is in the criminal legal system and they don't feel, um, you know, they're not getting a just outcome or, you know, there's so many issues and all of those issues are issues that kids bring to school, but just in the way that their brain works, they can't learn everything if, they, if they're dealing with these very immediate needs. So when I went to law school, I wanted to make systemic change. And for a variety of reasons, I um, when I left law school, I started a firm, but I always planned to go the pub move into public interest. I just wasn't sure the right entry point. Was that going to be a nonprofit? Was it going to be government? Was it going, I mean, there's lots of options. Right. And when I was able to spend some time in the nonprofit space, especially at the lawyers committee, I really liked the model um, and the approach to doing the work. And I really liked bringing affirmative litigation. I believed a lot in the cases and I, it was just the right fit for me. Yeah, no, sounds like it. And I think this is where I bring up the point of this show, which is voting rights, right? The things that you just mentioned, right? Not having enough money or, you know, not enough, um, I think, what is it called? Social safety net, right? For, 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 you know, low socioeconomic communities. I mean, that is a failure of our elected leadership, right? That is a failure of our elected representatives to pass legislation at maybe the local level or even, you know, the national level. Um, and that leaves certain communities deprived. Um, and, and that's where I think voting rights, no offense to any other issue there are, is the central issue of, of not only our time, but centuries before us. I mean, we've been, we've been fighting for the right to vote for, for a very long time um, in this country. Um, so, so I wanna ask, you know, where, let, let's take it back to last year, right? It's 2020, uh, once in a century pandemic, you know, you're, you're a lawyer at the ACLU. What the hell is going through your head when you're dealing with, with a multitude of crises um, while, while trying to, you know, undergo a national election, right? Uh, just walk me through your response to 2020. And now that we're in 2021, going into the midterms, what, what's going through your head? Yeah, I mean, it's a crazy time to live through when you think about all that happened in 2020. Right, and it's a loaded question. <laughs> it's a loaded question on purpose. I mean, we can go on and on and on <laughs> about 2020 forever. Um, yeah. I'm interested to see how it's going to be covered in history books. Um, but I mean, I feel like 2020, there's lots of takeaways in the specific voting context. I feel like 2020 is a high water mark of why voting matters and how voting matters so much. Um, we had so many issues around voting in 2020 
And ultimately, the decision on the federal level came down to there being a higher turnout with certain groups that were able to influence the outcome of the election. So I feel like 20, when I think about 2020 and I think about the ways, I mean, you remember not an election that could be called on Tuesday election night and right. having to calculate um, and tabulate the vote from all of these absentee ballots. We were in the middle of it. We are in the middle of a pandemic. Um, absentee ballots, but also mail-in ballots, which aren't the same thing. Um, and so when I think about it, I think about the importance of voter registration. I remember volunteering um, in 2020 to make sure that people understood how to get registered in their state, what the registration deadlines were, what the requirements were. Um, I think it highlights the importance of local elections because 2020 was a presidential election. And so there's people who only vote in presidential elections. But if you actually want to make change in this country, you have to vote in the local and state elections because you are voting for the people who are making key decisions about the issues that um, you might want to change, right? Like if you are worried about injustice in our criminal legal system, then you need to vote for the um, district attorney, the prosecutor, your judges. These are all the people who are making decisions um, about whether or not to charge an officer who killed an unarmed person or to make other decisions. And so I think the importance of registering people to vote, the importance of local elections, I think they also showed what's at stake because we saw, especially in communities of color, where due to redistricting or um, sometimes political maneuvering with the number of voting locations, there were extremely long lines in communities of color, um, and there were efforts to discount the ways that people in communities of color voted. That could be mail-in ballots. That could be same-day registration, which was a big deal when Obama got elected. That Another option was reduction of poll hours, so people had to take off work to vote. They, the polls weren't open. Um, and then even now, in the aftermath of Seeing an election determined by the number of people who voted, we've seen all of these restrictions proposed and being passed. It's now illegal in Georgia for anyone who's not a poll worker to even give a bottle of water or a snack to someone in line, despite the fact that people spend hours in line waiting. And we know, based on um, maps, if you can look at a map and see that statistically, the people who are spending the most time in line are people in communities of color. And so I think 2020 was just an amalgamation of everything that is at stake and everything that could go wrong here. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I got nothing to say <laughs> except, yeah, it's true. Um, yeah, I mean, God. I, I still couldn't get over the fact that, you know, you're waiting in line and uh, a nonpartisan poll worker hands you a bottle of water. It's punishable by jail time and a fine. I mean, that's that's to me is just uh, unconscionable. And this is happening at the same time that we are like we as a society are reducing the number of polls, re like the actual physical places that you can vote are being reduced, reducing the hours, reducing the period that people can register to vote and the ways that they can register to vote, increasing the penalties for um, voting when you're not allowed to vote. I mean, it's a system that appears to me, in my personal opinion, 
that is clearly set up to exclude people from voting. And those people who are going to be excluded look like me. Right. And, and the funniest part is more voting is better for both parties, right? Because if we look at, I, and I look at the results in the presidential election, right? We had like 74 million for Trump and like 80 million for, for Biden. I mean, that's a lot of people. Uh, who are just coming out and supporting their respective parties, you know, uh, and, and that the party choice is up to you. But voting for voting turnout in both parties for whether you're Republican or Democrat matters, because then you get to voice your opinion, cast your ballot, however you'd like. But the fact that one major party is having this reaction of, of closing off and suppressing certain communities and gerrymandering districts, which we haven't even talked about, where we're going to get to it. Um, I, it, it's a little bit like history is repeating itself. Um, and, and It's definitely repeating yeah. itself. And these are the same tactics that we've seen. The right to vote, um, the functional right to vote has always been controversial in this country, but is especially controversial now where there's an attempt, where there can be attempts for small groups to keep their stronghold. Um, yeah. And I agree with you. Everyone's voice should be heard. I think we're stronger as a democracy when we have people being heard and it is important to hear so many people and we also have to respond right like if there are 74 million people in a country who feel one way and 80 million people who feel a different way that split is sufficiently close but that has to be considered how do we even come back as a country how are we going to unite when we're on such opposing ground yeah it doesn't make that much i mean it to speak candidly, it's it's the white majority keeping their majority by restricting other people from voting. It's it's very clear to me. Um, and and I guess I see we see that in states like Georgia and Texas. And Texas is also taking a an interesting stance on women's reproductive rights nowadays, um, and and removing the ability to get an abortion. So it's heavy-handed, conservative, reactionary, um, and 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 it's. It's subverting what I what I believe are principles of democracy, right? Um, and so now I'm going to ask a very simple question, right? Uh, is voting important? It's a yes or no, um, but I'd really like to hear if it's another answer. I mean, I don't know that I can make this one word answer emphatic enough, but yes, it is very, very, very important. And I think it's there is no way to overestimate the importance of voting um, for people. It can be life or death. Mm -hmm. um, the impacts are life or death. Um, and there's no way when I think about the change that I'm fighting for now, it cannot happen without people voting in favor of change, selecting candidates that are in favor of change, holding them accountable, asking questions. Um, but the way our our democracy is set up and the control that goes into elected officials' hands, we are responsible for that and we have to vote. And so there's, I, I just can't say anything else. Voting is super important and it matters. And when I am most frustrated, I can see, you know, see very clearly the impact of elected officials on way things that impact me personally or issues that trouble me personally yeah and i'd just like to add right and i brought this up on the show um, many times which is voting is not an end-all be-all it's not the silver bullet it won't fix your problems but it, it 
it's the first step, right? It's the first chapter of the book. Maybe it's the prelude, right? Maybe it's the prologue. You know, you're opening that that book. You know, English assignments due tomorrow. Got to read ten chapters. Voting is the first chapter of that book. Um, and, I'm going to tell you a LSAT phrase. LSAT, okay. It is necessary but not sufficient. Yes. And in the logical reasoning section, there is a lot of like what is necessary but not sufficient was sufficient. I mean, that's a, a question, a term that I think of often. It's certainly necessary, but it's never going to be sufficient. Right. And I like that. Uh, I'm not a real lawyer, so I didn't know that. But when I become a real lawyer, I might. Not yet. Yeah. <laughs> not yet. Well, you'll remember, you'll remember this when you see it on the LSAT. Yeah. Uh, and they, they do a lot of it, but I feel like that's one of the few takeaways that you actually use from the LSAT. Yeah, I like that. Necessary, but not sufficient. That is voting rights because, you know, you, your candidate may win, your proposition may lose, um, or, you know, vice versa. And the fact that you stood up, you advocated, right, or you litigated, you're not going to win every case, right? Uh, but it, it definitely shows where your morals are at and, and will continue to every other case, every other candidate, and every other proposition you see. Um, and, and that spirit, I think, is what this show is all about. Um, but before we get to that, do you have any aspirations personally to, to run for office? One thing I always tell all my friends, right, in the political space, if you want to change something, you got to run for office. Um, so you have that choice. Do you see yourself running for office? Um, just like I told you, there is no way to emphatically say yes to the importance of voting. There is no word for me to emphatically say no to my intentions on running for office. Interesting. Um, as emphatically enough, it's not, it's not for me. However, I am engaged in our political process. I vote. I um, campaign. I volunteer. I do. I support candidates financially, which is also just very big as a practical matter you got to put your money where your mouth is yes i'm just making sure i got that straight um so i but am i personally going to run absolutely not never if you hear it it's a lot interesting okay well i mean you seem to have made up your mind so nothing more i can say to that it's not for me but as an advocate i am appreciative of people um, that run the courage and all that goes into it, but I have less than zero percent interest. Well, I mean, it was just a question, um, <laughs> but no, I, as, what you do, I think is everybody finds their own niche, right? Everybody has mm -hmm. their own place. Um, running for office is one of them, you know, being a badass ACLU lawyer is another so, I mean, teach their own. Uh, but to get to my final question in closing, which is advice, right? The, the point of all of this is to energize, invigorate, um, and, and shed light on issues that I see, um, and, and I think we can all collectively agree, are issues of mass importance moving forward, right? So voting rights, what is your advice, right, to the next generation, Gen Z, you know, the, the graduating class of voters, what would you tell them, right? We have people like me who are very engaged. We have some folks who just watch the news or pay attention, read an article or two, and we have others who couldn't care less. Um, you know, what, what do you say to us going into uh, a time where everybody is divided? 
Yeah, I would say we need your voice. Um, and I think that that is something that is super important. Granted, I was a teacher and I really like hearing from kids and I like working with kids. But even beyond me and people like me, your voice matters so much. And I know that there are people who have changed their positions because they heard the passion and the pleas of teenagers and young people who are explaining why something matters to them. I'm thinking specifically about gun control. And even though attempts to pass more restrictive gun control measures weren't widely successful in this country, there are a good number of people who were convinced, uh, you know, to change their position because they saw the leadership of Gen Z and young people. So I would say, one, we need your voice. Two, it's so important to talk about issues with your friends and family. I grew up in a household where they don't want to talk about politics at all um, when I was growing up, but it is important that we talk about politics and it is important that we talk about our position. Why are you in favor of this? Why does this not bother you? What principles are at stake? When our country is so divided, it's really those individual connections that are challenging people to think differently. And you, your parent may not listen to whatever talking head on either side there is on TV, but they likely will listen to your opinion. I think there's also opportunities to volunteer with campaigns, to run for campaign, uh, to run your own campaign, to donate to campaigns, um, both time and money. But I think as while you're at the prime of your youth, you should also take advantage of the opportunity to speak with candidates who and hold them accountable. What are your plans around gun control? What are your plans? Your what is your position on a woman's right to choose? What is your position on voting restrictions? I mean, just hold them accountable because you're the access to have conversations with people, even when you can't vote, but to express to them this is something that matters to me is I think really important. I would say encourage your friends who are old enough to vote, like people who are able to vote for the first time make sure they actually do it because the numbers aren't stacking that up. Um, and, you know, when people are first able, I remember the first time I was able to vote, I was very excited about it. Um, and so make sure your friends, if you're not 18, but your friend is, are they voting, even if it's not a presidential election? And I think there's other ways to just stay engaged as well. Before you can vote, you can still vote with your money and think about where am I spending my money? You can look up um, corporate donations to figure out, am I supporting a company that is supporting using my money to support a candidate who I fundamentally disagree with? When that happens, maybe you can find your goods someplace else and not support, put your money in a cycle that is going to support that person. And then I also just wanted to flag, I told you I was going to flag this, that there are resources for young activists who want to become more engaged. One of them is the ACLU's National Advocacy Institute. And I have participated in this and just learned so much from the young advocates about the change that they are trying to create in the world and their approaches. So I would also say, look out for opportunities to refine your skill set so that you are better able to create the change you want to see. But the most important thing is we need you. I need you. I know there is a lot of hope um, that about the change that is going to happen as you all continue to gain power and influence and it is really necessary. So I'm really excited to see all the things that are happening and hopefully we'll be setting, um, setting change in motion that will benefit 
you ultimately. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. I mean, yeah, no, youth matter. Hashtag. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. How can how can we stay updated on what the ACLU does, uh, what you do with the ACLU? If you want to plug, this is the only time you'll get to promote yourself on this channel. Uh, so if you want to plug your social medias, I'll happily link them in the description. Yes. Um, so our website is www.aclu.org, and you can find out about all of our work. Um, there, one thing I will flag is that we have a national office that does work across the country. That's when I, where I work. But we also have affiliate um, organizations in all of the states and some of the U.S. territories that also have their own website. So there are lots of ways to become engaged. You can come engage with um, our website. I follow our social media. Um, and that's a great way to learn about our work as well. I am on Twitter. I, I will link my account. It's Leah Watson Esquire ESQ. Um, I have not yet mastered my tweeting skill, but I'm going to get there. Um, and I think that there's lots of ways to become engaged, lots of people. I would also say I am um, so encouraged that you reach out to me to have this conversation. And well, you have a podcast and you're clearly ahead of the times and doing such amazing things. You should feel empowered, you, the listeners, and everybody else, just youth in general. You can reach out to people and ask them questions, and they will talk to you about their opinions on things. Everyone may not talk to you, but who cares? Um, if you're able to just reach out to people and ask questions, and it's something that, I mean, I too do. Um, I reach out for informational interviews or reach out and, you know, ask to have conversations to help me think through things. And I think that having as many of those conversations going um all throughout the career spectrum is really important yeah definitely um and no thank you so much for coming on the show um taking time out of your busy schedule um and you know maybe you had to sue somebody but instead you're talking to me so so thank you so much feel bad for that guy uh but no uh i think your perspective your insight was 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 great um and i wish you the best of luck luck in, in all of your future endeavors and, and suing people and organizations. I mean, good luck with that. Uh, if you ever need somebody to stand in, I can be counsel. You know, I definitely know the jargon. Uh, if Viola Davis has taught me anything, you know, uh, but in any case, uh, thank, thank you so much. And, and you're welcome back on the show anytime. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure to have this conversation with you. And I'm so inspired by all you're doing. I really appreciate this opportunity. Thank you. Thank you. Do take care. You too. Peace. Bye.